Welcome to the Renegade Disciple Podcast, where we use Christian theology to try to make sense of what the hell is going on around us, and horror movies to try to cope with whatever the hell this is going on in the world around us. I'm your host and fellow traveler David Dickey, semi-professional theologian and lifelong horror movie fiend. This is a very special transition episode for the show as we wrap up our first month and look ahead to the future. I've got some updates for my plan and kind of the method to my madness going ahead. So without further ado... I'm doing stuff, Lori. Thanks. What are you doing out here? I've, I've been... I've got stuff out here. Like Rick, I've got some stuff and things going on. So in my classes, I'm always adamant to students from the get-go that the syllabus is a living document that's subject to change as the flow of the semester takes shape. Now the changes are never radical, I never add assignments at the last minute, I just reserve the right to tweak the schedule or remove something if it feels like too much is going on for the students. That kind of flexibility came in super handy in 2020, as you can imagine, and it's I think it's a good rule for life. Because let's be honest, most of y'all have probably blown through plans A, B, and C in life. And hell, I'm on like plan R at this point, and if I run out of this alphabet, I'll just switch to the Greek alphabet or something. If we weren't flexible in life, we wouldn't be here today, would we? I tell you that because we've got some announcements, so that's why we've jumped straight to the stuff and things section. So here we go. I like to think I've been pretty transparent that I'm figuring this out as I go. And one thing I figured out is that I messed around and put myself on a schedule that was going to have me producing six to seven podcast episodes a month by myself while working other jobs. And I think you can quickly see how that might be problematic. More importantly, I don't want to run the risk of such a schedule leading to inconsistent quality in the content I bring here. So I've got a new idea. We're going to try out moving forward for a while. And if this one doesn't work, we'll tweak and adjust after that. That's the whole point. Keep evolving. Keep getting better. So for now, this is a weekly podcast. Episodes come out on Sundays. You've seen the basic structure of these Sunday episodes, where we go through housekeeping, the stuff and things, news updates for the pod like we're doing right now. Then we talk about movies and shows that I've watched that week. Then we round up the news items from the broader world, and I give some hot takes on what sticks out to me from them. And we end with the Sunday reflection on that week's lectionary reading. Moving forward, that's going to stay as the general flow, except one Sunday a month, we're going to have the deep dive on the current events topic instead of a news or what I've watched that week roundup. And another Sunday each month, We're going to have the deep dive on one movie related to the topic instead of the weekly news and show roundup. I hope that makes sense. I really think it'll work out better, and it will be more manageable for me and more manageable for your podcast feeds, and it'll let me continue to grow and produce better content here for y'all at the Renegade Disciple Podcast. I'm committed to producing better and better content here as I learn. 
All I ask of you is to keep coming back and keep remembering to rate, review, subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform, or even on multiple platforms, because all the numbers help. In a like manner, if you'd be so kind, share it to social media, tell your friends about it, blog about it, whatever it is you do to spread the word about the things you like. Finally, if you want to ask me anything, make any recommendations about topics or movies or even the flow and structure of the show, anything else you'd like to hear me talk about, whatever, or if you just want to offer direct feedback, you can email me at renegadediscipledpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's renegadediscipledpodcast at gmail.com. So with that said, let's get on with our deep dive for this month, Frank Darabont's adaptation of Stephen King's The Mist. Shall we? And that was when it started getting dark. But no, that's not exactly right. My thought at the time was not that it was getting dark, but that the lights in the market had gone out. I looked up at the fluorescence in a quick reflex action, and I wasn't alone. And at first, until I remembered the power failure, it seemed that was it. That was what had changed the quality of the light. Then I remembered that they had been out all the time. We had been in the market, and the things hadn't seemed dark before. And then I knew, even before the people in the window started to yell and point, the mist was coming. It came from the Kansas Road entrance to the parking lot, and even this close it looked no different than it had when we first noticed it on the far side of the lake. It was white and bright and non-reflecting. It was moving fast, and it had blotted out most of the sun. Where the sun had been there was now a sliver coin in the sky, like a full moon in the winter seen through a thin scud of cloud. It came with lazy speed. Watching it reminded me of somehow of last evening's water spout. There are big forces in nature that you hardly ever see. Earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes. I haven't seen them all, but I've seen enough to guess that they all move with that lazy, hypnotizing speed. They hold you spellbound, the way Billy and Steffi had been in front of the picture window last night. It rolled in partially across the two-lane blacktop and erased it from view. The McKeon's nice restored Dutch colonial was swallowed whole. For a moment, the second floor of the ramshackle apartment building next door jutted out of the whiteness, and then it went too. The keep right sign at the entrance and exit points of the federal parking lot disappeared. The black letters on the sign seeming to float for a moment in limbo after the sign's dirty white background was gone. The cars in the parking lot began to disappear next. What the Christ is that? Norton asked again, and there was a catch in his voice. It came on, eating up the blue sky and the fresh black hot top with equal ease. Even twenty feet away, the line of demarcation was perfectly clear. I had the nutty feeling that I was watching some extra good piece of visual effect, something dreamy by Willis, O'Brien, or Douglas Trumbull. It happened so quickly, the blue sky disappeared to a wide swipe, and then to a stripe, then to a pencil line. Then it was gone. Blank white pressed against the glass of the wide show window. I could see as far as the litter barrel that stood maybe four feet away, but not much farther. I could see the front bumper of my scout, but that was all. Now that beautiful southern honey-soaked voice you just heard was my one and only amazing wife, Abigail, our special guest for this episode, sharing a passage from Stephen King's short story, The Mist. 
I'll have her on a couple more times as we deep dive on this episode. Uh, and I think it's really good to break up always hearing my voice all the time. Also, she's amazing, so like the real superstar just entered into the podcast. The Mist was first published in a collection of 23 horror short stories by 23 different authors put out by Viking Press in 1980 called Dark Forces, New Stories of Suspense and Supernatural Horror. Recognizable names such as Dennis Etchison, Ray Bradbury, and Robert Block were part of the project. But in 1980, Stephen King had emerged as the hottest star in the genre, having already published Carrie, Salem's Lot, The Shining, The Stand, and The Dead Zone, as well as dozens of popular short stories and two novels under his pseudonym Richard Bachman, and having already seen Carrie and The Shining turned into critically acclaimed and highly successful films. If you look up the cover for Dark Forces... It lists the other known authors, but has, in the largest print and bold for good measure, quote, a short novel by Stephen King on the cover. The inclusion of this story was clearly the prime selling point for the book because King was clearly the rock star of the genre by 1980. And that term there, short novel, is telling because it definitely is a longer story than your typical short story, clocking in at around 200 pages depending on the edition you get. King has a propensity for these. They aren't quite novels, and they definitely aren't short stories. They're something else. Novella is a word I've seen King and others throw around. Some of his most known works have been such novellas, such as Rita Hayworth in The Shawshank Redemption, The Body, Apt Pupil, The Langoliers, Mr. Harrigan's Phone, Secret Window, Secret Garden, etc. Lots of them have been adapted to film. You probably recognized some of those from the list I just gave. And if you don't know, The Body was made into a little movie with Richard Dreyfuss, River Phoenix, and Corey Feldman called Stand By Me. And if you're around my age, that one gives you all the nostalgic feels. It's one that we were pretty much raised on, and I think was on basic cable every afternoon of every weekend my entire life growing up. It's also a great film. I actually think these longer short stories and novellas of King's make for better adaptations because there's not so much lost in the movie-making process. You don't have to edit so much. And sometimes the director and the screenplay writers even get to add to the story in good ways, which is what happened with The Mist, but we'll get onto that momentarily. The story was later included as the lead-off in King's second short story collection, Skeleton Crew. By the way, if you haven't read King in Life, but you hear us all talk about him all the time, and you're looking for an entry point to Stephen King, but don't want to start off with a thousand-page novel that could double as a doorstop, I would recommend this collection, and maybe even more so the one that went before it, Graveyard Shift. These are both just so amazing. They're the print version of the horror anthology movies and shows that I've always loved so much and come back to so often. I come back to these stories and these books the way that I come back to Are You Afraid of the Dark or Tales from the Crypt or Creep Show, which is a little on the nose since several Creep Show segments are based on stories from these two collections in particular. It's also in the notes section in the back of Skeleton Crew where King talks about how he got the idea for this story. There he tells us that he wrote it in the summer of 1976 for his agent Kirby McCulley, who was just starting to put together the Dark Forces collection. There King tells us, well, actually, baby, why don't you let the audience know what King tells us there. I couldn't think of a thing. The harder I thought, the more easily nothing came. 
I began to think that maybe the short story machine in my head was temporarily or permanently broken. Then came the storm, which was much as described in this story. At the height of it, there was indeed a water spout on Long Lake in Bridgerton, where we lived at the same time, and I did insist that my family come downstairs with me for a while, although my wife's name is Tabitha, Stephanie is her sister's name. The trip to the market the next day was also much as described in the story, although I was spared the company of such an arduous creature as Norton. In the real world, the people living in Norton's summer cottage were a very pleasant doctor, Ralph Drews and his wife. In the market, my muse suddenly shat on my head. This happened as it always does, suddenly, with no warning. I was halfway down the middle aisle, looking for hot dog buns, when I imagined a big, prehistoric bird flapping its way toward the meat counter at the back, knocking over cans of pineapple chunks and bottoms of tomato sauce. By the time my son Joe and I were in the checkout lane, I was amusing myself with a story about all these people trapped in a supermarket surrounded by prehistoric animals. I thought it was wildly funny what the Alamo would have been like if directed by Bird Eye Gordon. I wrote half the story that night and the rest the following week. Thanks, beautiful. According to the readily available sources, becoming a major film seems to have always been Frank Darabont's idea for The Mist. Frank Darabont was something like a Stephen King whisperer early in his career. Kind of like how Mike Flanagan is today. Darabont first got attention in Hollywood with his short film adaptation of King's short story, The Woman in the Room, through the Dollar Baby program. For those who don't know, Stephen King set up the Dollar Baby program decades ago for up-and-coming filmmakers. He has a list of his stories for which the rights have not been bought by a studio and which he intends to never sell to a studio, and film students, young directors, independent filmmakers, etc. can buy those rights from him for one dollar to make their own adaptation of that story. Now these aren't things that can be put out for wide release in theaters. They're not adaptations that are intended to make millions of dollars. If it does get picked up by a studio, then a whole other deal needs to be negotiated. But it's been a great way for young filmmakers especially to get their foot in the door of creating a film version of a known and loved story. Darabont got his start with the one and then turned it into a career coming to fame with the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile, and later being responsible for the first couple of seasons of The Walking Dead, which many folks consider to be the best. All along in those early years, he was thinking about The Mist. He even wanted it to be his debut film before he did The Shawshank Redemption instead. And even though I love The Mist, that was probably a wise career choice. Ever since he read it in Dark Forces, he was itching to adapt it. He bought the rights to it through the Dollar Baby program early and held them until he had his chance. Slash Film has a great oral history of the movie that came out for its 15th anniversary last year, and in it, Darabont says, The Mist called out to me for a number of reasons, one of which is I thought it was such a potent comment on not just our society, but all societies. We've got this very, very complex technological society, and we're becoming more and more dependent on that, by the way. And the more and more we do, the more and more there's backlash and mistrusting of science. The more we progress into the future, the more there's going to be a part of society that wants to go back to a very primitive, very superstitious time. And the mist really spoke to that. It really spoke to the thin veil between how we feel when the lights are on and everything's working fine, and when suddenly we're back in the dark ages. 
What's scary to me is all it takes is one massive solar flare that comes directly at us instead of off into some other direction of space and totally knocks out our technology and puts us back into the dark ages. If that happens, we're not going to be having a conversation like this on the internet. We're going to be out there shooting deer for dinner and trying to grow turnips in the backyard. It's such a thin barrier between cooperation and savagery, and I thought it was such a brilliant callback to things like Rod Sterling's great The Twilight Zone episode, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, or Lord of the Flies. The whole theme of the movie is in the scene where Tom says, yeah, when the machines are running and everything's fine, okay. Although even that's getting a little sketchy these days. But turn off the lights, no lights, no machines, no rules. You'll see how savage people get. And that really struck as true to me. I love when an unpretentious genre movie will actually present a significant theme like that. It's under those donuts and candy. There's actually a very nutritious meal, and I love when that happens. When I was reading it, somehow I just pictured one of those low-budget movies that we grew up all watching. In my case, pre-video, late at night, usually on some creature feature. It just reminded me of that sort of 50s, early 60s, low-budget, usually black-and-white, grainy kind of horror movie. It just felt like one of those things. And that appealed to me greatly as well. So it's a fascinating balance to me between very highbrow and very lowbrow elements. And nobody does that better than Stephen King. I think Darabont's really onto a lot of things there, and, and if nothing else, those lines tell us how deeply he understands this story and how much he thinks it can comment on our society as a whole. Eventually, Darabont found himself in a position to go ahead and do it already. So with a vision in place, a script written, a studio backing, and funding secured, they commenced production of The Mist in 2006. I think now's a good time to bring Abigail back in for the recap of the film. Warning. Spoilers abound. I'm going to spoil this 15-year-old movie. By the way, if you get bent out of shape by spoilers of a 15-year-old movie, seriously, you got to rethink your priorities in life. I personally don't understand the obsession with spoilers anyways. I literally spoil everything I ever see for myself before watching it or while watching it, and it not only doesn't take away from my enjoyment of the film or movie, but it probably enhances it. I was uh, talking with my father-in-law just this past year because he does the same thing, and he says that he's learned, many people think this is actually an anxiety coping mechanism for us folks. Lots of us just need to know what's going to happen so that we can enjoy the ride, rather getting so worked up about what's going to happen that we miss out on what's happening right now. So maybe that's why I need spoilers in my life, and why it's incredibly frustrating to no end how hard they are to get for a new movie before it comes out because everybody is so bent out of shape about spoilers and acts like their life is ruined if they see one snippet of something from a film before they get to go see it. Get over it. It's not a crime against humanity if somebody shows you a, a picture from a movie before you see it. Y'all will be okay if you catch a stray spoiler from time to time. But I digress. Baby... Why don't you tell us what happens in the mist? Okay. <laughs> we open on the storm of the century. No, not that storm of the century. That's David's joke. I don't get it. But anyways, we open on the storm of the century as a severe thunderstorm strikes Bridgeton, Maine. It causes a tree to fall into the lakeside home of our main character, David Drayton, where he lives with his wife and artist, Stephanie, and their son, Billy, played by Thomas Jane, 
who you may remember from such Stephen King properties as 1922 or the modern jaw ripoff of, with LL Cool J, Deep Blue Sea. And while surveying the damage the next morning, they notice a thick mist advancing over the lake. After a not-so-friendly interaction with the neighbor, who you cool kids will recognize as Dr. Gregory House's psychiatrist from the hit TV show House, David gives him what has to be an incredibly awkward ride into town to buy supplies. Little Billy tags along because, of course, I mean, obviously, we need more vulnerable characters to thicken the suspenseful plot. Once inside the supermarket, some real familiar and triggering vibes from that second week of March 2020 start to play out as police cars speed down the streets. A terrified local, Dan Miller, played by the good old Dale in The Walking Dead, he runs into the store, bloodied and warning of something in the mist. A civil alert siren sounds. Store manager, Ollie Weeks, and Bud Brown close off the supermarket as the mist overtakes them. Against everyone's wishes, another Walking Dead actor, Melissa McBride, leaves and tries to get her children, who have been left home alone, for what was supposed to be just a quick store run. But apparently she has to lose track of kids and everything she plays in? Again, against David's advice, store clerk and bagger, Norm, he attempts to go outside to fix the store's emergency generator. But, dun-dun-dun, he is grabbed by terrifying tentacles that bite. Yeah, they bite now. And poor Norm is dragged into the mist. David and Ollie rush to direct customers to begin barricading the storefront windows. And in the midst, not the mist, see what I did there? <laughs> In the midst of their hard work, some religious fanatic, who seems to have been waiting all her life for this opportune moment, Miss Carmody, seizes her time to shine in pure Jim Jones fashion. She begins preaching about an impending Armageddon, charismatically setting up some self-fulfilling prophecies and quickly gathering a small group of believers by offering easy answers in the face of this terrifying uncertainty. Now on the other end of the spectrum, but equally infected with absolute certainty, is neighbor Brett. We find out that he's a successful lawyer with what he fancies to be a healthy, skeptical, and rational mind. He vehemently disbelieves any of the dangers because to him, such things obviously can't happen and thus, no amount of evidence can convince him that such things are happening especially when reported from folks who he suspects already don't like him and would love to make a fool out of him. Again, despite David's pleading, he leaves the store with a small group to seek help. Spoiler, they fail in their efforts, and we are left to imagine the horrors that besiege them within the mist. In their time together, David forms connections with several of the people that he's trapped with, including Andrea, um, I mean, Amanda Doonfrey, yes, you guessed it, another Walking Dead actor, and Irene Repler. These two are teachers who came in conflict with Carmody over her fire and brimstone ramblings. Amanda carries a revolver in her purse and gives it to Ollie, as he is a formal regional shooting champion. Then as night falls, things get worse. Yes, worse. Enormous flying insects, attracted to the light, swarm the windows. And but wait, there's more! Huge flying insects are eaten by pterodactyl-like creatures because, yes, there are always bigger flying nightmare monsters. To quote Qui-Gon Jinn, another David joke for you, for you Star Wars fans out there. 
The menagerie of mayhem grows and now includes a plague of giant locusts that smash a window, allowing everything inside. Panic erupts, and in the ensuing chaos, two people are killed, while another receives fatal burns after attempting to incinerate the insects. Meanwhile, Carmody is miraculously spared from an insect, which convinces her to proselytize even more fervently, and which entices more followers to join her evolving cult. A small group, led by our leading man, heads out into the neighboring pharmacy to search for medical supplies, but they are attacked by an entire nope colony of giant spiders that killed two men, forcing them to retreat. Carmendy, who has obviously opposed the expedition, now strikes at another opportunity to use this failure to increase her influence by offering protection from divine wrath to the new converts. Like the mist, this insanity is also spreading through the supermarket. The next day, following the suicides of two soldiers from a local military base, a third soldier, Jessup, reveals that a government project designed to discover other dimensions has been underway at a nearby base. And, oops, call me crazy, scientists have accidentally opened a doorway for these creatures' habitat into our own. Fun times. And again, without missing a beat, Carmody pridefully pounces at yet another opportunity to rile up her followers and successfully convinces them to offer Jessup as a human sacrifice, expelling him from the supermarket. Outside, he's devoured by a giant praying mantis-like creature. The terrified Billy clings to his father and makes him promise, Please, Daddy, don't let the monsters get me! It is a promise that David will really come to regret. And this David is, of course, the leading man David, not my David. So as the leading man David and his group secretly prepare to leave the store the next morning, they are duped and accosted by Carmody, who righteously informs them that Billy has been chosen by the group to be delivered as a second sacrifice in order to appease these monsters. As the crowd descends upon Amanda and Billy, Ollie shoots and kills Carmody. A hush falls over the crowd, and the stunned survivors allow the group to leave. As the group makes its way through the parking lot, poor Ollie is devoured by the aforementioned praying mantis-like creature, while two others are killed by the more spindly-legged nope spiders from the pharmacy. And did I mention their webbing is like acid? Yeah. So, hell no, says one of them, and runs back to the store where he's led inside by the patrons. David, Billy, Dan, Amanda, and Irene reach David's car and leave. Driving through the mist, David arrives home to find it destroyed. Stephanie, well, she's dead. D-E-D, not just dead, but mummified and cocooned, stuck on the wall like some prized mantelpiece. Devastated, he drives away from town casually passes a colossal six-legged beast, and eventually they run out of gas. With what seems to be no means of triumph over this inescapable mist, the adults decide to end their lives. There are, however, only four bullets and five people. Stepping up to the plate, in hero fashion, in hope and belief that he will spare them all a terrible death from the creatures of the mist, he takes it upon himself to end it. David kills his own son, Billy keeping the promise not to let the monsters get him. Then, the other three survivors. In utter defeat, 
he leaves the car with certainty of suffering the fate of his own death. Suffering, yes. But death? No. In one of the most gut-riching twists in the history of film, we see the mist slowly but steadily dissipate, revealing that armed forces are rolling in, kicking ass and taking names to restore order. David, seeing that the army has also rescued survivors, including the woman who left to get her children, realizes that he has killed his son and fellow survivors as they were just moments away from rescue. He drops to his knees, screaming in despair, the end. Golly, yeah, the movie ends. And what an ending. From this moment forward, Tom Jane's character must become the Punisher. But in a PG-13 kind of way, so as to not offend the censors. Oh, I'm sorry, wait. That's the wrong Thomas Jane loses his whole family and has to cope movie. I said earlier how Stephen King's novellas make for great adaptations because the director has the opportunity to add their own touch to them. And this is the prime example. King's story ends in a cliffhanger. The group is driving into the mist, listening to the radio, hoping to hear something other than static, and they think they do. Billy asks David what he heard, and David says that he could make out two words. Quote, one of them is Hartford, the other is Hope. It's a great way to end a short story, a typical move for King's short stories, actually. Very similar to the ending of Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, where Red is on his way to Mexico filled with hope of finding his friend Andy Dufresne. And that's kind of interesting because Darabont also famously adapted that story into what is still to this day the highest rated film of all time on IMDb, and he changed that ending from a hopeful cliffhanger to a loving embrace between two friends on the beach in Mexico. Just like in that instance, most agree that Darabont made the right choice to give The Mist some finality, even if it is such an awful, soul-crushing finality. Even King agrees. He's been vocal in his support for the choice over the years. A prime example was when he told Yahoo Entertainment, When Frank said that he wanted to do the ending that he was going to do, I was totally down with that. I thought that was terrific. And it was so anti-Hollywood, anti-everything, really. It was nihilistic. I liked that. Sorry I couldn't do a better King impression. I'm not, I'm not even going to attempt the main accent. But I can hear Stephen King's voice in my head with that overly positive tone that he takes about his film adaptations most of the time, saying, that was just, I thought it was terrific. I love that man. Audiences and critics mostly liked the ending, too, and the movie. It opened on November 21st, 2007, having been made with an estimated $18 million budget, and it eventually made about $57.4 million at the box office, and then just over $30 million in home DVD sales. It holds a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes and carries an IMDb rating of 7.1. It was a success, and it's endured as a success, and even maybe grown in popularity and appreciation through the years. A few years back, Darabont re-released it in black and white instead of color, I think hearkening back to that quote of his where he said it reminded him of the old black and white creature features. And that was an amazing adaptation. The film itself ages well in terms of the CGI used on the creatures because you don't see a ton of them a ton of the time, and when you do see them, they're kind of lurking in the mist and in the shadows and just popping out for quick moments of scare. 
in black and white, that makes it even better. It takes away some of the rough CGI on things like the scene with the tentacles in the storage room. If y'all have never seen the black and white version of The Mist, go and watch the black and white version of The Mist. It's a fantastic choice. Abigail doesn't like it as much because she's not as big of a fan of black and white films. Which I, I understand and respect that there are those of y'all out there who exist who don't like black and white movies. I have always loved black and white movies. I, I have the Universal films on, the, the, the monster movies from the 30s and 40s. They're on repeat in my house all October. Sometimes I creep them into September. Sometimes they last till December because I love those movies. They're the ultimate comfort films. Yeah. Needless to say, I loved when he re-released it in black and white. It's such a good movie. And, out of all of the choices, I really wrestled with what movie to watch for this month's theme about LGBTQ plus rights and mob mentalities and scapegoating and, and what people can do when they're worked up into a tissy as society crumbles around them. And then it hit me, why not just watch The Mist? Because The Mist definitely touches on all of those themes. And it shows a microcosm of society. The store that they're all trapped in during it, it becomes a miniature society in of itself with people from all different kinds of class backgrounds, people from all different stratas of life, people who work in different careers. It's got white collar and blue collar folks, folks with high educations, folks without much of an education, all lumped together, religious folks, non-religious folks, in this same terrible situation. So I want you to think about that situation and then think back to what we talked about with René Girard and his scapegoat theory. Think about the cycles of persecution that we experience throughout history and think about the stereotypes of persecution that emerge in four stages when such a cycle is taking place. You have the crisis that leads to differentiation. You have a crisis in the breakdown of the foundations of a society. You have the breakdown of norms, a threat to the society of, as a whole that breeds differentiation. And what that means, like we said in the other episodes, is it creates this we're all in the same boat feeling that's not a positive feeling, but a negative feeling, in that your typical social hierarchies break down and yeah, we're all in the same boat. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor or if you're smart or if you're dumb or if you love Jesus or if you're an atheist or if you're a school teacher or if you hate public schools. It doesn't matter if you vote Republican or Democrat. This crisis has come and it has broken down all of those differences and it's affecting and threatening all of us equally. And in that kind of a crisis, Girard's work always reminds us that people lose their minds because they lose control. They can't control a situation. It's attacked everything they depended on, all those things that exist to help you live a quote-unquote normal life from day to day are suddenly stripped away, or at least some of them are threatened to be stripped away, and you're left in deep fear wondering, what's going to happen next, and also wondering what caused this. There has to be a cause, which always in Girard's outline leads to the next stereotype of persecution in collectively agreeing with each other that some crime had to have been committed, some social transgression has happened to lead to this crisis. In the mist, if you think about it, you wind up with the social transgression 
of the experiments going on at the military base that has ripped a hole between dimensions. That's the base level crime against society. And it's a crime against society because it brings in all those other things that we're sometimes suspicious of, that the government's doing things that we can't trust them to do, that they're going to get us all killed because they're keeping secrets from us, that the secrets they're keeping from us put us all at risk. When that blows up, that becomes something you could point to. But notice in the movie what else quickly happens. The non-believers are part of the problem. Not just that it was the government doing these experiments, but that they were meddling with God's design, according to the prophet of doom, Miss Carmody, and her growing following. They were doing things that we were never supposed to be done. They were trying to seek knowledge that only God can have. And in that, they were blaspheming God and committing idolatry of human knowledge, and they were sinning. And look, they're not even mostly Christian folks anyways. And look, the only people supporting the soldiers to keep us from killing them are people who don't believe our message about God, the heathens, ready-made targets of this whipped-up social anxiety and blame are identified by the mob as the third stereotype of persecution, and then these cycles end in bloodshed. In the movie, the cycle ends in bloodshed. They do an actual human sacrifice. The religious leaders play on the fear in the store and send a human to their death to try to appease an angry God for the transgressions that have put them in this crisis situation. This is a perfect example of a Girardian persecution cycle and scapegoating. This is what I was talking about in that first episode. This is what happens so many times throughout history and is what is happening in our world today. The only difference is the folks being blamed in our world today aren't even remotely connected to an actual transgression that's occurred. They're only connected with their existence pointing out the flaws in the worldview of the folks who are now so angry and so whipped up that they're going to find excuses to murder them. What's happening in America in the last seven years in a heightened way, but we've been building towards it for decades, is exactly what was going on in that store in the mist. Exactly. People are afraid. We've gone through multiple crises. I laid all this out in the first episode, and now we see it in a movie. That's why I chose to watch this movie, because we could talk about these things briefly. Now, I also chose to watch it because it's a really enjoyable movie with one of the best twist endings in all of the history of film. I remember the first time I saw that. Do you remember the first time you saw it? If you haven't seen it, I wish you could now go watch it and not expect that to happen. I know I ranted about spoilers earlier, but that one did get me. Because I had read the story, I knew how the story ended, and then the movie didn't end in the same way. Not only did the movie not end in the same way, but it rips your soul out from you and stomps on it on the ground at the end. That's good filmmaking, y'all. It's why this movie has stood the test of time, and it's why I chose it for the show. There were other options we could have watched to talk about this topic, and I considered a lot of them. Most of the other options I thought about were around the notion of witch trials. Um, the first movie that really stuck out I thought we could watch was The Crucible, about the Salem witch trials. And remember, The Crucible is based on a book that was written during the McCarthy period in the 50s. So it was using the Salem witch trials from history 
to point out just how dangerous what was happening with the Red Scare during McCarthyism in the 50s was. I, we, we could have talked about the book, we could talk about the movie. The movie's alright. It's got a... Uh, it's got Winona Ryder doing one of her period piece roles, giving one of her really bad sort of British accents, but that's fine because we love her and she's the mama on Stranger Things and nobody's better. And she's in Beetlejuice, right? So she'll always have our eternal affection in the horror community. We could have talked about that. We could have talked about other witch, witch trial movies. I thought about Witchfinder General with Vincent Price. I thought about watching uh, Wicker Man. Because in The Wicker Man, the main character definitely gets scapegoated by the pagan community on the island. But also, he's kind of an asshole. He's not a very innocent victim, and he's really stupid. So it, was, it would be hard to be sympathetic towards him in using this to talk about scapegoating and Gerard. And I'm sure there's plenty of other movies out there that touch on these topics. All of them would be great to watch. But this is the one I chose because it not only lets me talk about a movie that I love and that I enjoy to watch and that I hope y'all have enjoyed, but it also helps me talk about Stephen King, the horror master himself, one of my gateway drugs into feeling okay about my attraction to spooky things that's been there since I was a kid. I've been reading Stephen King since I was so small. And I'll never stop reading Stephen King because Stephen King's never going to stop writing books. I'm convinced I'm not going to live to see the last Stephen King book because he's probably going to die with a mountain of 87,000 books left to be published. And he's going to get published until the end of time. And that's fine because it never gets old. I think the first Stephen King book I read was, um, it was Cujo. And I read Cujo in the fourth grade. Fourth graders probably shouldn't be reading Cujo. But it's also, this is another thing where I should say, uh, maybe fourth graders shouldn't be reading Cujo, but I'll be damned if I agreed with anybody who said that they should ban Cujo from libraries that fourth graders should access, could access. We don't do book bans around here. So yeah, I read Cujo in the fourth grade. I didn't understand half of what I was reading, especially about the affair going on between the the, couple, the mother and her boyfriend and all the marital issues that undergird the story. But I definitely picked up on a rabid dog trying to eat a little boy. And it was great. And even as a fourth grader, I appreciated, hey man, this guy can write from the perspective of a rabid dog and it doesn't come across as corny. Yeah, he's awesome. And I read more Stephen King books here and there through high school and, and junior high and growing up. Uh, <clears throat> I'm a big reader, but I'm a slow reader. My ADHD actually hinders me in, in pounding through books because I'll read a line and I'll think about this, which will make me think about this, and then I'll have to Google five things, and then five hours later I might be able to come back and read the next paragraph. But I still always keep trying to read. I love to read. It just takes me longer than most folks. And I kept reading Stephen King and collecting Stephen King books to be read. The, the slowness on... How long it takes me to read a book is probably another reason why I like short story collections so much. I can just read a short story a night or over a couple nights in bed and get through it and really enjoy them. But I came back in a real way to Stephen King right at the end of my undergrad. Uh, right as I was graduating and getting ready to apply to and start seminaries, there was you know a few months of a break. And there towards the end of undergrad, I, ha I had this thought that I had not read fiction in maybe a decade. 
You know, I've been so wrapped up in reading nonfiction and reading my biblical studies and theology and history books, and I love those, and I still love those, and I'm still more prone to read that kind of writing than fiction at any given time. But I was strung out, and at the end of undergrad, and I had to, you know, do a couple 21 credit hour semesters to finish up, and I was burnout. And I think it was about that time in life to have your quarter, your quarter life crisis, so all of that was going on. And I thought, maybe I should just read some stories for the sake of reading stories. And why not go back to my old friend Stephen King? And so that's what I did. I went back to my old friend Stephen King, and I started reading through his library. I've not finished it. I've not read every Stephen King book. I haven't even started The Dark Tower, because it seems like a lot to chew off, but I started and in so many real ways they saved me in that moment I was so burnt out and I was so tired and I was broken and it was like my brain wasn't working like it usually worked and I had worked so hard to get to that point and, and even if I've ever had a crisis of faith it was in that finishing up of undergrad because I was so tired and I was also in the middle of, you know, the transition and the things I believed about certain things that we talked about a little bit in the second part of the deep dive this week, and we'll probably talk about a lot of it moving forward from month to month. And these books, like, like, they helped me feel feelings again. They helped me connect with my own humanity again. They scared me from time to time. I found treasures like hidden gems of books I'd never even heard of. When I when I restarted as an adult trying to read through all of Stephen King's books, I'd never even heard of The Dead Zone. Not the book or the movie. Yeah, awkward confession, I know. But I'd never even heard of it. And I tell you what, it is my favorite Stephen King novel. My favorite Stephen King novel is The Dead Zone, and it's the one that when I opened it, I'd never heard of before. They're, they're so good when they're good. Right, there's some down points. When they're good, they're so good. And I loved it. And I think in so many ways, they helped me reset in life and be ready for seminary, be ready to be successful. And I've made it a point to not go a decade without reading fiction ever again. Because it helps process life. At least for me. Maybe it does for you. It helps process what's going on around us. It helps process the crises that we're facing in the real world. And then sometimes it gets turned into great movies. And this week we talked about a great movie. I'm going to dig up some more great movies for us to talk about month to month moving forward. We're going to keep up with this new format. That's more of a slight tweak than a new format, but it is what it is. And I hope you all keep coming back. I'm so grateful that any of you would come and listen to me talk about anything. I hope that we can engage with each other in more real ways on social media or you send some emails or write some reviews and give some good feedback and I promise to keep keep working at this thing until I crack it because I'm gonna and I can't wait to show you how far I can grow and what I can come up with after the music cue we're gonna reflect on this week's lectionary reading stick around for that if you're interested if not I'll see y'all next Sunday thanks for being here God bless Today is Sunday, April 30th, 2023, the fourth Sunday in Easter. The reading from the lectionary I'd like to look at this week is from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The early Christians were some radicals, y'all, to put it lightly. The memories of those who inherited the gospel from them were memories of a whole new way of being human, of organizing human life, of living day in and day out. To them, the resurrection of Jesus was confirmation that the turning of the ages was at hand. The apocalypse was happening, and the empires of humans were being exposed for the frauds that they were, and that even the power of death that the empires fancied themselves as wielding was not a real thing, ultimately. They had murdered Jesus, and he came back. Nothing could be the same after that. Sure, the early Christians knew that they were still awaiting a final fulfillment of this process, as we still are today, but the enduring lesson they give us here that we have been liberated to live its truth out here and now. The truth of radical love and community, the truth that supersedes family ties, patriotic sensibilities, economic wisdom, and everything else sensible people will tell us we need to align our lives with. They were the seed of a new people of God, the kingdom of God on earth, planted in small places like yeast and dough, with the intention of eventually transforming the entire thing into something that it wasn't before. C.S. Lewis talked about it as the good infection. They were the cure given to a sick body that works like infection but in reverse, which means their very existence is problematic to the representatives of the infection. They existed like yeast put into dough that thinks it's fine the way it is, dough that doesn't want to change. I know colonialist metaphors are hella problematic, but it has always helped me to envision the true mission of the Christian community as being something of a reverse colonization process. Planting communities and lands that reflect the opposite values of the powers that be and exist to subvert and eventually overturn those powers. I once did a study of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and it highlighted how this anti-colonialist colonial metaphor undergirded Paul's entire missionary endeavor. He picked up the pattern of empires like Rome and Greece who would conquer lands militarily and then seek to conquer them culturally by establishing base cities of their own culture, with schools and theaters and libraries and coliseums to host public games, architecture, technology, etc., in the intent to overwhelm and eventually take over the culture and supersede the culture that pre-existed them. Paul saw himself as doing that back to the Roman world with the churches he planted. There were colonial bases of the kingdom of God that existed to undo imperial power through being the opposite of everything that the empire was. If only the church could have lived up to that mission throughout history. Imagine the possibilities. But that doesn't mean it still can't. A deep truth that our world struggles to remember when it comes to anything, it used to be a rule of logic with a fancy Latin phrase, abusus non tollit usum. Simply translated as abuse does not cancel use. Basically what it means is that just because someone misuses an idea or a system, that fact is never a valid argument against the system itself. A proper use often still exists. The wisdom behind this is important to politics and economics. 
For instance, America sucking to live out democratic ideals can never be an argument against democracy. Or in economics, just because some folks can point to problematic regimes that have adopted and misused socialism, none of them are ever valid arguments against socialist ideas. Likewise, none of the worst things that Christians, or for the most part any religious people throughout history, have ever done will be ever a single valid argument against the religions on their own. We can still choose to live as if the kingdom of God were already here now. We can still live out its values of total acceptance and mutual affirmation and edification today. We could still renounce the idea of possessions and get weird with property laws and banking and investments and checking accounts. We could still participate in total wealth redistribution and other notions that fly in the face of how our world is structured if we so chose. If we could be but so courageous and bold to live out the gospel to its fullest extent in those ways. I truly believe we should be looking for workarounds of the obstructionists in our midst by living in radical community like this, regardless of the legalities of such activities. And the infuriating thing is, you'll find a million books, sermons, blog posts, podcasts, articles, all kinds of things, going out of their way to talk about what this verse and the others like it are not about. They bend over backwards and twist themselves into knots to make sure that this is not about socialism or communism. That a nation that thinks itself Christian should never be expected to construct their society around these ideals. We do well to ask ourselves why they so desperately need these passages to not say what they say. I would propose it's because they've traded in Christianity for national identity and political preferences that don't require them to feel negatively about their country or their culture, but rather convince them that the Christian faith actually reinforces their country's economics and cultural norms. It's the safe road. The broad road, if you will. I think we should all be weary of such easy paths, for therein lies the path to destruction. And no, I don't mean eternal destruction in, in hell, but destruction of all our power to do good and transform this world to look more and more like God's eternal vision for it. Look around us. Why has the Christian message lost so much of its oomph in its work in this world, so much of its power to transform the world towards justice? Because of the ways it's been allowed to be co-opted on behalf of power, even when its very existence is the end of that kind of power. This way of thinking has done more harm to the gospel's power to change the world than anything. It's led large swaths of Christianity in America to call good evil and evil good for so long that the truth looks like lies to them every time they see it. It's the fog we must shake off before we can truly be the people of Jesus. For so long, being American means standing against anything that looks like socialism. It's the big scary word painted with a big red brush and used to send chills down the spine of a people indoctrinated by the Cold War, a people who still worship that period's heroes. None of it can stand up to logical scrutiny. That's why you just have to be told to be afraid of it and accept that, to hate it in such absolutist terms. That's why you can't consider the more than valid criticisms of capitalism in the way it undergirds and even encourages all of the worst things about the world. Swimming against the grain of so much propaganda is a hard, narrow road for sure. Also, for what it's worth, I don't necessarily see critiques of capitalism falling into the abusus non tola usum category from earlier, because there's a strong implication that capitalism itself breeds dehumanization and inequality as a feature, not a bug. 
This isn't people abusing the system. This is people using the system exactly how it was intended. That's Marx's first major point, and he's been proven pretty unassailably right on that point in terms of the fatal flaws of industrial capitalist systems. That's why the entire world, even capitalist bastions like the United States, reformed themselves in response to his critique in the early 20th century. But I digress. These are difficult truths to allow your mind to accept in this culture. And they're even harder to live out. Who among us is really willing to claim none of their possessions as their own, but hold them in common with their brothers and sisters in need? We have a few examples of such people throughout history, and most of those examples become saints. This speaks to how rare of a path it is. And yet, here it is, in this passage and through the next few chapters of Acts especially, presented unflinchingly as our sole example of how the earliest followers of Jesus lived in the aftermath of the resurrection. What they had experienced and witnessed with Jesus convinced them that a new world had emerged in their midst, that they could live into it every day, no matter what was going on around them, no matter what the government and its laws said, no matter what the economic wisdom of the day said, no matter the cost. Jesus came back from the dead, and wonders were being done in their midst every single day. Nothing else that used to matter mattered anymore. Not possessions, not rights, not conceptions of personal freedom. It reminds me of another passage that's been foundational to my formation over the years. It happened to pop up in my daily readings from Luke just this week. There in chapter 14, as Jesus is traveling, teaching, healing, stirring up good trouble and whatnot, we get this story, starting in verse 25. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned to them and said, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost, to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to ridicule him and say, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. The Christian life and community is, in the end, supposed to be one of endless generosity towards one another. But that generosity has a cost in terms of that community's relationship with the broader world. With power and wealth and patriotic ideals, with standards and norms and supposed common sense. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hanged in a Nazi concentration camp 78 years ago this month, spoke of such costly discipleship when he wrote, The messengers of Jesus will be hated to the end of time. They will be blamed for all the division which rends cities and homes. Jesus and his disciples would be condemned on all sides for undermining family life, for leading the nation astray. They will be called crazy fanatics and disturbers of the peace. The disciples will be sorely tempted to desert their Lord. But the end is also near, and they must hold on and persevere until it comes. Only he will be blessed who remains loyal to Jesus and his word until the end. When you tell folks that hoarding treasures on earth even when they worked really long and hard for them, is theft from the poor, 
and that anything that encourages them to live such a life with notions of prosperity and the gospel of personal responsibility to convince them that the poor don't even deserve help is always antichrist? When you say it doesn't matter, whether it's their preacher in their church telling them that it's okay to live that way and believe those things, their favorite commentator on the TV, their daddy, Fox News, whatever, when you tell them that's Antichrist, you're going to be accused of being divisive and un-American and using too harsh of rhetoric or politicizing the gospel or whatever other feckless accusations they try to muster. And none of that matters. Jesus came back from the dead. The final word on all arguments between individualism and common good, between wealth and poverty, between power and the people, has already been spoken. We must strive to live accordingly, no matter the cost. Will you pray with me? This prayer was adapted from the prayers in the Jesuit Institute's website. Lord, lead us from death to life, from falsehood to truth. Lead us from despair to hope, from fear to trust. Let peace fill our hearts, our world, and our universe. Let us dream together, pray together, and work together to build one world of peace and justice for all. Loving God, look with mercy upon the human race you have created. May our hearts see your kingdom, in which the destructive poverty of our world is destroyed, and so that we will make poverty history. Grant, gentle Father, that your Spirit may give us the will and the courage to act to make a difference, in order to make real your kingdom among us, so that we may all live together in peace, truth, justice, and love, sharing the resources of the earth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless y'all.